This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm going to start with uh, an apology, and I hate presentations that start with an apology. Um, but some of these slides, I think a number of people in the audience will have seen before. Um, but of course, the overall messages within it, I think, stand repeating. Um, to do with the true scale of the use of admissions tests in the system, um, to do with the way in which they're used and so on. There are so many myths which I'm afraid just keep constantly being repeated uh, in summaries of the admissions situation in this country. And so it really stands um, some degree of repetition. Um, And forgive me if you've fully assimilated the messages... Um, I'm afraid I'm going to go through some of them again. And some of them are are odd. So, for example, um, some of the the claims which are made, which we come across, are odd, rather. Uh, A-levels don't predict uh, performance at university. Um, Everybody takes admissions tests in the States, and they are the thing on which university admission is based, and so on. You know, they, they just surface time and time and time again. So I want to run through some of those matters again, just to try and set the record straight. Uh, then there's a key slide which actually summarises uh, the issues as they appear today, and I want to concentrate on that slide in the 30 or so minutes that I'm presenting. And then the second thing is rather anecdotal, but it, it, it came after a, a long discussion that, that Simon Levis and I were having on the back of the very, very good paper which has recently been produced by... Thank you very much indeed. Richard, who's just arriving. Um, (laughs) Let me introduce Richard Partington. Um, But um, as as Jeff Parks and I were just saying, Jeff was just saying about the new website which has been put together by the university to bring together its work on admissions. And the work done here at the university, some of which we've supported by the supply of data in some cases through mutual discussion of the issues, represents a real step forward, I think, in understanding admissions. And and some of it challenges prior research. So Simon and I were running through some of the findings. You know, the the issue of the extent to which um, students with a comparable score from the independent sector and the state sector, respectively, enjoy or do not enjoy differential performance at HE. These kind of very, very important matters. And Simon said something very important. He said, you know, Tim, I'm actually a brilliant musician. Um... Of course, I can't play an instrument or read music very well. But I could have, because I'm very interested in music um, now. Uh, And I always have been. Um, And had I made different choices when I was very young, then I indeed would be a a brilliant musician. And I think that ought to be taken into account um, when I'm applying for anything. And in a sense, that's what often happens. This notion in our system that Um, We want to compensate for the choices which people have made. Often those choices are made by young people with very imperfect knowledge of their circumstances or their aspirations. And Phil Hodgkinson did very good work um, on uh, learners in FE and the reasons why they choose particular institutions and courses. And policymakers always assume that young people make their decisions in the light of perfect knowledge of the system, perfect knowledge of what they should do in order to realise the things that they want to achieve in their life. And, of course, they don't. 
But a key question for universities is how much should they compensate in the admissions process for so many things which have actually happened before? And I think that, that's a very, very important matter. So what, what's the context at the moment? Well, stretch and challenge has been implemented in A-levels. And as far, again, somewhat blowing our own trumpet, ARD is, I think, one of the few research groups actually looking at how stretch and challenge has been implemented and what impact it's had. And Joe Emery in ARD has done work within a particular model, of uh, a design model for the research, of, of saying, going around the subjects and saying, how did you conceptualise stretch and challenge? How did you implement it in your subject? And what impact has it had on the outcomes in that particular subject? Because we know that it's been implemented differently. In some subjects, it's meant discrete questions, which are oriented towards stretch and challenge. In other subjects, the mark schemes have been changed because the questions actually allow a very broad range of attainment to be demonstrated, and so on. So we've done a very thoroughgoing analysis looking at the first outcomes from stretch and challenge in the qualifications. A-star has been implemented for the first time. And um, we've got this interesting increase, now up to 15% of people getting, getting three or more A grades. That's up from 7% um, at the end of the last century. And there is fluctuating demand for a generic emissions test. It was a big recommendation of the Schwartz report. Um, there are lobbies that continue to argue for it. It was discussed recently at the Westminster Education Forum. Wouldn't it be a good idea because of the equity? And we kind of say, well, yes, but hang on a minute. Let's just think about validity, something which I'll return to time and time again this afternoon. Let's put everybody on a single scale. That would be really helpful and fair. And then the trouble is, many of the people you're actually interested in differentiating will probably be indistinguishable in terms of the score that they get on that single scale. So you defeat the very thing which you're trying to achieve. And the SHE trial, very expensive, very thoroughly undertaken by uh, Chris and his colleagues at NFER, really just showed that the SAT, uh, not least because it was a US SAT, which in a sense is a substitute for, or, or is an anal- analogue of GCSE, because in America there are no national qualifications of the kind that we have in this country. The SAT simply was a predictor of performance in A-levels, essentially, they concluded. So it doesn't offer any additional incremental validity or predictive value over and above that which we already have in this country. Um, How can one summarise the third? Um, I mean, it's incredibly laden, the widening participation agenda, because that story about Simon, in a sense, is in there. What we want to do is, is actually moderate a fully meritocratic system by a moderated meritocratic system, and we're mithering about what that moderation should actually be and the consequences for particular groups and particular individuals. And we are not yet, I think, anywhere near a principled enactment of that moderation. And yes, contingent and enforced reduction in HR participation. Some countries like Singapore and Hong Kong are not in the midst of budget uh, deficit, but we are, and we've got to confront it. We've also got to confront, I think, within that, what the purpose of HE actually is. Uh, And Carmen uh, Rodel-Videro in the audience has done some very good work, which we've fed through into government, on the the extent to which HE is vocational, uh, medicine, engineering, accountancy, and so on. 
And if you count it properly, more than 50% of our HE is vocational. And very strictly vocational. It has a very specific link with the labour market. But we have a very weak middle vocational route at sub-degree level. So what is our HE for? And, and how is it internationally attractive? It's very attractive because it's short, it's high quality, it's intensive, and it's only of three years' duration. And one of the things that one picks up from international discussions is if we make our degrees four years long to compensate for what we perceive as the limitations of our general education system, many of the students that are attracted and government's funding for students that come here will be more attracted to the state's. That's very salutary. And again, that impacts on our admissions processes and the articulation between the form of the provision and the admissions that we manage for it. But the notion of of intensive, elite, short-duration HE with a very well-specified purpose, I think, is critical when considering admissions. What are you admitting people to and for what purpose? And embarrassing realities in respect of gender and school type. They are embarrassing. Um... If you use certain tests very judiciously and with a great deal of attention to validity and to their design, you suddenly find you select, oops, more boys. And you think, oh my goodness, well, we've got a biased test. And then you look at what it is that is being assessed in the test and you find that it might be that participation in physics at advanced level is going to be instrumental in the success in that test. And then you look at who's doing advanced level physics So the fact that an admissions test actually, actually um, causes admission differentially across genders may not mean that the test is biased, but it's actually showing difference in terms of the subject choices and the things that young people are actually studying and the type of attainment they're deriving from those studies. We've got a real worry that there might be a route through double physics, double science, which doesn't involve much physics and so on and so on. There is quite a lot of opposition to admissions tests, um, some of it very rational, some of it ideological. The more pragmatic aspects of the opposition to it do relate to school organisation. A school has to realise that, that somebody needs to take an additional test. They have to organise the entry. The en- that entry has to be paid for at the right time. We're pretty... <laughs> No, I was about to say we're pretty flexible. The admissions test uh, administration team would therefore kill me. Um, (laughs) We do our very best to admit those that have trouble with their entry. (laughs) Is that okay? Okay. Um, But it nonetheless is an issue. There are more and less organised schools. And so some people may miss the boat simply by virtue of the institution not realising and the parents not realising that an entry should have been made. There is additional cost to it. There is an additional assessment load. I'll return to it in a minute. And what's the situation? What's the context, really, overall, in terms of missions? There's a high proportion of departmental tests developed by departments in HE and other institutions. There is a low level of validation work, by contrast. Lots and lots of, of tests, but not much validation work. We've, we've really tried to underpin our tests by validation research. And I'll come on to what we mean by validation in a moment. Um, but I commend the Cambridge University website, and our reports are on our own website. But it's a, it's a kind of a moral and technical imperative to underpin them with evidence. 
Again, these I'm going to rattle through because these are the things that the majority of people have seen before. Um, definitions of an emissions test, HEI is own devised or devised by a group or consortium or by an awarding body, used by one or more in one or more subjects. And this is just a grid of you know, what we've got. There we are in terms of one or more HEI ebb and flow in terms of who's using them. Um, some migrate from them because they feel there isn't enough validation or they don't work. Um, some institutions like Cambridge do work and reject tests after having used them for a while on the basis that they're not actually providing any additional incremental predictive validity. Institutions own tests. Um, and it was reported in um, the Nuffield study, the, the the 16 to 19 study, that there was a dramatic increase in the number of admissions tests. Now, there has been an increase in the number of admissions tests which are recorded by SPAR. But a footnote in the SPAR annual report says, this is almost certainly an outcome of the, un- of the institutions actually letting SPAR know that they are running a test, not an actual increase in the number of, te- of admissions tests. This is really very important. I've done a great deal of work on this. I don't think there is a massive, unfettered, burgeoning increase in the number of admissions tests. Far from it. They're pretty static, in fact. Uh, And and so on, and so on. Um, We've got a family of tests, often linked by virtue of an underlying common item bank. But that itself tells its own story. Because we emphasise validity... It is a question of ensuring that you design a test which has components which are appropriate for predicting um, either outcomes at the end of the course or whether people can stay the course. Something, again, I'll return to what we mean by validity. We emphasise that the design of the test should be linked to the requirements of the individual programme. Those are the numbers. Um, International interest in admissions tests are growing in medicine and so on. And mothballed is our own work on a generic test, the unit test. We did a great deal of work on this generic admissions test with ACER. We did a great deal of work with departments and institutions. Um, and it was almost impossible to get any traction. And we decided not... I mean, Why try to force on the system something for which it appears there is no need or interest? So we mothballed it. Seven tests developed by testing bodies, 60 by institutions. The SAT1 and Unitest were trialled in the UK, not adopted. But can we express that as a percentage of the evidence used in admissions in the country? And I think we can. Typically, a figure of 40% is often used. 40% of institutions use tests. Of course, that's illusory because, really, it's courses that use them. So if you get a figure for courses, 48,237, which is derived from the UCAS scheme, and a stable figure sourced from SPA, then if you divide the number of courses by the number of tests and so on, then about 16% of 300 nine HE providers in the UCAS scheme, but it's about you know, 0.7% of the total courses. But, of course, an emissions test isn't the sole 
criterion or body of evidence on which an admission would be made. So although it's 0.7 of the courses, it is a tiny percentage or proportion of the total evidence used every year to admit people. Now, this is not understating the importance of particular tests in medicine, for example, but it is, that's a, a true representation of the volumes, and it's a different way of looking at the volumes. So these are the national tests, total number of applicants. These are the SPAR criteria, uh, which are advisory and have no legal status, but in a sense represent the, the views of the admissions test community in conjunction with SPAR. So rigorous validation and reliability testing be supported by statistical and research evidence. And frankly, that body of evidence is lacking. We're beginning to get scientific accumulation. We're beginning to get interesting contrasts in the findings of the most recent research and research undertaken previously in previous decades. And that is stimulating a very important debate. And I think that will contribute to scientific accumulation in this area. We do need to ensure the minimum of bias in the test question so the test is valid for all applicants. But there, indeed, lies a hornet's nest. Um, when are you detecting difference rather than bias? If you're detecting difference and that pulls you in a direction that you don't want to go in terms of the institutions that you're recruiting from because that's contrary to the widening participation agenda or, indeed, pushes towards a gender balance which you find unsatisfactory, what do you do about it? Do you bias, do you bias the test in order to compensate for something that you feel is not right in equity terms. And these are thorny issues to which we haven't derived principled solutions yet. But we need to be very clear about the difference between difference and bias. Be readily available and accessible, and of course there we have these major issues about the extent to which schools may or may not be aware that they need to offer them. Provide exemplar materials and tests with answers, fitness for purpose, linked to validation, be approved for use through institutions' relevant structures and processes. And, and these myths, it's all by SAT in the States. Well, the fact is that curriculum-linked tests are now increasing in their importance in the States. The, the equivalent of A-levels are just increasing. The Advanced Placement Award has enjoyed increasing numbers in the States year on year on year. The IB is increasing its numbers in certain states. Cambridge Assessment is working with a number of states on curriculum-linked assessments to be used for prediction in HE participation and success. And, and, and that's the, the, the constellation of material which is, is really available on the table in the majority of HE institutions in the states. Multiple sources of evidence, and that's critical, multiple sources of evidence which are used to make a decision, with some prioritised in certain cases of certain young people, and, of course, policy not being clear at an institutional or national level about what you prioritise. A lot of devolved decision-making in terms of which you would want to prioritise as a tutor, admissions tutor or admissions coordinator for a particular course. Our own criteria, we develop assessments in close conjunction with HE, usually on request, are not about forcing assessments on the system. Um, do, if I, I mean, I, I run the admissions test... Uh, team in, 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 in ARD in Cambridge Assessment. Um, we make money from our tests um, because people have to give us money for running them. 
do the, does the amount of money those tests generate pay for the number of people and the amount of money that running these tests cost? No, it does not. So we don't do it in order to generate surplus profit. What we do it for is to actually supply an educationally significant service to those institutions that deem it essential. A unique contribution to the emissions process, hence the failure of the SAT trial, because it wasn't adding anything, and it shouldn't replicate previous and concurrent assessments. That would be crazy, and we'd be wasting people's time and money in so doing. Valid information in respect to superdility for progression. There are issues of cost, burden, validity, and utility. Um, With an eye on the time, I'm just going to put those up. I'm not going to go into them. Um... There's a lot of nonsense talked about cost. Um, When you look at the amount of expenditure that young people engage in, the amount that is spent on an emissions test, which is highly determining of their future, is pretty insignificant. Um, It does add to assessment burden. Um, Validation, as I said, is is an issue. Um, There should be reasonable cost for each assessment. Emissions tests introduce a whole new ballgame in terms of travel to centre, though. Because we are quite convinced that admissions tests should be run in a supportive institutional environment. That's typically the school in which the person is studying. But some admissions tests actually demand very long travel to a centre to actually take them. And then we've got the thorny problem of preparation courses and materials. Again, um, colleagues such as Joe Emery have done work on whether preparation actually advantages you. Um, Something I'll return to in just a second. Um, and burden, logistics of setting, duplication, more stress, critical gateway assessments. But this is the one I actually want to spend just a few more minutes on. I've already talked about multiple sources of evidence, and even the most sophisticated of us tend to forget the very sophisticated nature of admissions. So when people talk about A-levels, suddenly you find in the policy debates um, people wanting to take all of their expectations to A-level and really complaining that it doesn't do everything and likewise with an emissions test. It's a question of what contribution does this thing make, not whether it can do everything. There isn't, and as far as I can see, there will be no magic bullet. Um, Incremental validity is therefore critical. What does this thing add? And, And making a decision about how much you would expect for a given level of cost and a given level of burden, both in terms of institutions and young people. And there is a challenge of developmental validation because you want to use the tests with the population that you're interested in. And it's, yet we're all impatient. We want these instruments to yield data as rapidly as possible. But really, genuine validation takes time. So we've developed sophisticated Uh, protocols around the extent to which these should be developed in live circumstances with live students but with caveats attached and safeguards attached to the use of the outcomes. But there is a a real risk of of undue urgency in the adoption of these tests. Um, And then there is a real problem in that because when you start to use them and actually start to change the people you take on the basis of using the tests you actually might experience a decline in predictive validity of the instrument. Real conundrum. 
And um, there is also a problem um, in terms of something that the medical, um, the, the medical profession experiences, which is that very often the introduction of a new protocol actually gives you very adverse outcomes in the first few years. Very tricky. Do you persist with the instrument? And TSA, the Thinking Skills Assessment, is fascinating here. And we have a very vibrant discussion with Oxford, with users of the TSA in Cambridge, with users outside. Because in Cambridge, there is an unpredictable collapse in the correlations in different years, but in different subjects. If the test was disastrously designed in a given year, then you would find the collapse occurring in one year. But what you find is the correlations are rendered peculiar in different subjects in different years. Now, when we look at those data, some people have actually said, well, that's obvious then. Tripos is rubbish, isn't it? Um, Well, no, because other data suggests that Tripos is pretty stable, and not least the processes by which it's derived are thorough and meet the criteria laid down by Cambridge. There is something peculiar going on. So the challenge is for developmental administration of this, validation of this test. Is there something funny in the cohorts? We've got to drill down into this. And yet, for an individual admissions tutor, that means it's a nightmare, because they don't know whether they're in a subject in a particular year in which the correlations won't hold up, because you only find out a few years later. Now, we could put that under the carpet. We could conceal it in terms of our research. But we don't want to because it's a very real scientific challenge, both for those trying to evaluate the tests, those trying to develop them, and those using them. And then Tony Hoare and I were discussing very briefly, predicting what exactly? And again, undue expectations of admissions tests. Is it entertainment? Do we want an extraordinary relationship between a score and an admissions test and the outcomes of an HE programme. Which says the universities don't do much then. Um, <laughs> or do we just want to get a decent population through these tests? Those that stand an equal chance of doing very well. Or, those that, that, or do we want tests that really screen out those that are risk, at risk of dropout? And so on and so on. And again, I think it's an area where we've really not nailed it yet. In BMAT, we're pretty clear. It's about ensuring that in terms of preclinicals, you are selecting the right people. And, and again, um, Richard puts it well. <laughs> this is a quote for you, from you, actually. Look, we've got the definitely in, the definitely out. We know about those. And then we've got this ridiculous number of people in the middle. And it's them which we're really bothered about. And in a sense, that's an excellent set of des- or a design criterion for an admissions test. And you then focus on what it's doing by way of discrimination in a particular population. Interest in non-cognitive dimensions. You've got a non-cognitive test in UK CAT. um, And it doesn't predict very well. Um, Do we actually look at non-cognitive dimensions, motivation to study and so on? Because other research suggests that we should be looking at those dimensions. They do predict attainment, sticking power, the adaption to adaptation to the the study processes in higher education. 
And then we've got STEP. I mean, people talk a lot of nonsense about criterion reference and norm reference qualifications. Paul Newton's doing a lot of very interesting work on what were considered to be putatively norm reference qualifications in this country, which turn out not to be. But STEP is genuinely norm reference. And it works very well for the mathematicians. But the, the problem with STEP is that if you take it in 2009, you can't use your score in 2010. And maybe that's right. Because if somebody took it in 2009 and doesn't have a similar score in 2010, they've even forgotten a load of stuff that they really should have attained, have retained, or the test isn't doing a very good job in terms of stability. And are we bothered about somebody taking a test twice? Interesting. But STEP is very interesting because it's one of the few examples internationally of a true norm-reference qualification. A test, rather. And I could talk about this for hours, but I won't, because I've only got about 30 more seconds. The very peculiar attacks on A-level. It does prepare people for higher education. Perhaps not as well as it should. We could get some different skills in there in terms of preparation for the, the forms of learning which are present in higher education. And we're in intensive discussion with the HE community on that basis. But it does prepare for HE. They are intensive, and they are relatively narrow. And that's a good thing. We get general education out of the way early in this country. That's an interesting way of looking at it. And therefore, we don't need four-year degrees. And it predicts if you use UMS. So maybe we shouldn't continue to use grades. Grades generate all sorts of nasty artefacts. The tariff, weird thing. Don't understand that at all. Generate loads of information on people and then throw it all away by giving people a single score. Can't understand what that's for at all. Um, and then we've got the recent work at Cambridge on state versus independent, UMS and GCSE, where although everybody is citing the most recent paper using the, the multiple regressions as proof that um, there is no distinction between those with the same score between state and independent schools, and therefore you shouldn't preferentially recruit from the state sector. Within the paper, there's a fascinating thing about identifying those students who've got an outstanding GCSE score amongst otherwise schools that've got low or mediocre GCSE scores. Fascinating stuff, and very real. Shines out of the data. And then you've got stuff that Carmel, uh, Carmen and her colleagues uh, in ARD Stats have done on A-level choice and widening participation. If, if at GCSE it's all about attainment, at A-level it's all about choice. It's about what subject you choose to do. Straight back to where I began in terms of Simon. People are making very peculiar A-level choices. They're often ones that make sense to them because they're doing, they want to do a, a subject with the teacher who's got the best reputation in the school for delivering really exciting programmes. The thing is, they've just done a subject which actually will take them out of scope to some very good universities. Um, and that, I believe, is something we really need to look at. The rational, or the basis, the form of rationality which is being enacted by young people in respect of their A-level choice is critical in the system. Schools, undoubtedly, from our own research, are bending over backwards to give kids what they and their parents are asking for. But are they aware of the implications of the choices that they are making, the doors they're opening, but more importantly, the doors they're closing? There's no point in beating elite universities over the head with a sledgehammer saying you're getting people from the wrong schools if you just can't find the people, if they just haven't done the right qualifications. 
I mean, what a bizarre system in which you drive people to non-meritocratic entry and actually taking people who aren't suitable because there's somehow some moral imperative behind it. But there's an awful lot in that last one. So there we go. A few questions to leave you on. Can an assessment be coached for? That would be a very bad thing. That's we strive against. Does the assessment duplicate anything else? It shouldn't. Is repeat assessment for retention by candidates necessary in order to look at deep learning? That's an interesting issue of step. What's the evidence? Validation. Are candidates adequately supported in terms of both entry and preparation? Does it contribute unreasonably to candidates' pressure and stress? I'm reading this slide out and you could read it. Are costs reasonable? Does it really open up access or does it close it down? Non-traditional entry. I haven't talked any at all about the fact that everybody talks about A-levels, which are very good qualifications, but, of course, what about all those people who don't have them because they come from other nations? Uh, and some of those can't speak English very well, but they learn it pretty quickly when they're here. What are the educational backwash effects of whatever qualifications you use for admissions? Is there adequate monitoring of these in line with the Cambridge approach of being concerned about the effects and uses of your uh, assessments? What does admissions testing tell us about confidence in other assessments? Utility of information from other sources is a critical thing in multiple evidence and what does it tell us about standards over time? If the outcomes of these emissions tests tell us that standards are one thing and the curriculum tests tell us that standards are moving in a different direction, all very interesting, none of which we have time for. John. Well, thanks very much, uh, Tim, for putting a very, very useful background to one aspect that uh, is involved um, in the admissions process that we have to deal with uh, at medical school. So that's really what I'm going to be talking to you about. How do we uh, use uh, the information that we can get in order to select uh, the students that we think are the best for our course? Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Imperial College as a background because uh, it uh, was actually created in 1907 on the basis of an amalgamation of um, the Royal College of Science, the Royal College of Chemistry, the Royal School of Mines, all of which had been created over the previous hundred years. And uh, then Imperial College became part of the University of London, and it was Imperial College of Science, Engineering and Technology. And it has always remained a very, very uh, specific university. And at the same time, in the, in the 18-1900s, uh, various med hospitals developed their own medical schools and they all developed along the line and uh, actually as far as medicine at Imperial is concerned the real starting point was when St Mary's Hospital and its medical school in 1988 could see the way things were going for the London medical schools at the time jumped the gun and uh, merged with Imperial College at which time it became Imperial College uh, of science, technology and medicine. But really, uh, medicine got going as recently as 1997, when the other medical schools in the northwest of London, which were Charing Cross and Westminster Medical School, the Hammersmith Hospital Royal Postgraduate Medical School, and various associated institutions and hospitals, all uh, merged with Imperial to form the uh, medical faculty. So this really just gives you an indication of the main uh, teaching sort of areas that we have uh, at our disposal. Uh, we're essentially based uh, on the Imperial College campus in South Kensington, which is the uh, central picture. Uh, 
And then we have the St Mary's Hospital campus, which is just across the park, and then the Charing Cross Hospital, which is where the Charing Cross and Westminster Medical School used to be, and, of course, the Westminster Hospital became a, a brand-new Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which is a lovely building. It's more like a, a hotel. And then, of course, the more historic uh, Hammersmith Hospital, which is where the Royal Postgraduate Medical School was based. And they all uh, were very important medical schools uh, themselves. But having merged to form the Faculty of Medicine at Imperial College, I believe it is now the largest uh, faculty of medicine in Europe and so that is essentially where we start from. And the point I'm making is the fact that it is actually very recent as a creation, but it is built on a very uh, solid foundation which uh, comes from the links between the various components which made it up. So my plan uh, on the basis of what I was asked to talk to you about is to tell you a little bit about the way you can study medicine at Imperial, I'll then tell you a little bit about two of our main courses, which are the six-year and four-year courses that we have. I'll touch upon uh, the um, number of applications that we get coming in from overseas. And then uh, I shall just touch upon the various issues that uh, admissions tutors um, have to try to deal with. And I think you will all appreciate, particularly from... Uh, from Tim's excellent talk, that there are lots of problems, in a way, associated with this whole process of how do we select the best people for a particular um, subject like medicine. So, let me start with just telling you about our uh, various courses. The main one, as you can see, is our undergraduate intake, which is 286 students, and uh, we have a six-year course that we offer them, unlike uh, many medical schools uh, which offer five-year courses purely for medicine. Being imperial, we believe that science is fundamental uh, to a proper understanding of medicine. So, like a few other uh, select medical schools, all our students will be doing a BSc. So, it's a six-year course. And, of course, at the end, they come out with the MBBS and the BSc. And we think it provides them with a much better basis for their future careers. Very recently, about four, I think we're in our fourth year at the moment, third year certainly, uh, we actually started a graduate entry programme. And at the time, uh, there was um, a mood at Imperial that uh, we should really be heading towards a full graduate entry system as they have in the States. So we've started along this line. I've got a feeling that it probably will never actually take over completely. But nevertheless, as I said, we have now got a four-year course. Uh, those students will come out with the MBBS, and it's limited to 50 students. And then, since quite a lot of you uh, come from Cambridge, and indeed from Oxford, you will appreciate that of all the students you have uh, coming in to do medicine, uh, there are insufficient places... Uh, for the clinical studies that are necessary. So, by historic agreement, uh, many of the all students will come to the London medical schools. And as a result of that, we have an intake of 34 who come in from this source. So, those are the three ways in which people can come to Imperial to study medicine. Let me start off with our six-year course, the main course, really. And uh, there are various stages in our process... And the first one is the basic qualifications. 
because we obviously have to ensure that all the students who are going to be coming to Imperial to study medicine are going to have a sufficient scientific background particularly which will allow them to survive a very tough uh, medical course and ultimately a very tough uh, career. So the basic qualifications are obviously a starting point and that's an essential one. Uh, until about five, six years ago, we did not use an admissions test. I'll come back to the reason why we went into using one, but as you can see, the one that we use for this particular course is BMAP, the Biomedical Admissions Test. And we use that in order to select those students who are doing the best on the score, who already have demonstrated that they're going to be getting the qualifications that we're looking for, and those are the ones whose UCAS forms we will then look at at the next stage. And on the basis of the UCAS forms, we will then call up for interview, and that's the make or break uh, on whether or not we offer them a place. Just to give you a feel for the kinds of numbers that we're dealing with, these are approximate numbers, but on a given year, we would have something like 2,500 people applying for what you can see down here is our 286 places. So it's a very competitive uh, situation that we face. And if you remember that we have a certain entry requirement uh, to start off with, then it means that there are a large number of people out there who have got already the kind of basic entry requirements that Tim mentioned, the A-levels, for instance. Uh, we always get some people who haven't read the website properly and for one reason or another aren't giving us um, the, uh, those requirements that are minimal for us, so that usually drops the number to some extent. But even so, you can appreciate that we have a large number of people to select from. And this was our problem before uh, we actually started using an admissions test. Because up till then, when I started off as admissions tutor for the Faculty of Medicine, uh, we actually had to read 2,000-odd UCAS forms and somehow select those that we thought we ought to call up for interview. And you can appreciate that it uh, was uh, very difficult to be fair uh, it was not easy to be transparent about how we were doing all this. It was done by panel, but uh, we were always concerned, and obviously a lot of people would complain that uh, they, or their children, hadn't been uh, called for interview when they were marvellous people. And I have no doubt that they were and are. But somehow we had to select out. So it was becoming increasingly a big problem for us, let alone the fact that you would appreciate that staff time uh, has become more and more um, difficult to get, and so we were uh, facing a situation where it was going to be becoming uh, a mountain to climb. So we decided to follow the line of using an admissions test. And at the time, BMAT was the only one that was uh, already being used and for which there was already a certain degree of validation. And uh, we went down the BMAT line. And what we have done is use BMAT as our second stage. And the distribution is relatively normal. Uh, there may or may not be a slight tails. But essentially, um, we look at the scores for the top end 
of the distribution and work our way down until we have, we believe, the number of UCAS forms that we want. And those are the ones which we will then take down to the next stage and uh, look at the UCAS forms. And at that stage, there is, again, another triage we can get. Uh, we decide that some people may or may not be appropriate, perhaps, for Imperial. We don't think perhaps they're really indicating sufficient reason for wanting to study medicine, whatever. We whittle it down and then have a final number that we will call up for interview. And the interview is relatively short, and it's the one at which we will decide on whether or not to offer a conditional place. And for a few people uh, at this stage, uh, they haven't done well enough at interview to be offered a very definite place. But on the other hand, you know, they looked potentially acceptable. And for those, we um, tell them that if they don't get it anywhere else, when they get their A-level results and they've met the entry requirements, uh, then they can contact us to see whether we have any places left and we will then uh, consider them at that stage. So that's essentially um, how we work it. Let me just take you through the various stages because I think we, uh, every medical school will have its own way of selecting uh, its students. I think that's beneficial. It means that uh, if you don't manage to get into one school following a particular procedure, you've still got plenty of other chances. Well, three other chances. For us, we uh, at GCSE really ask for a minimal uh, kind of qualifications. We ask for three A's and two B's across the three sciences, English and maths. We deliberately don't go along the line of other medical schools which are already asking for eight A-stars and all this business, mainly because uh, we would be concerned that there are uh, children who have been to perhaps um, not a very good school at that stage, haven't done that well, but then go on to another school where they are going to have much more chance of getting uh, decent A-levels. So if we raised our GCSE um, standard to, let's say, eight A-stars, we would be losing a lot of people who actually we think might well have the potential and coming from widening participation backgrounds, for instance. So we keep them very low. But at A-level, you would appreciate we're already going to three A's and a fourth subject with a minimum of a B at AS. So they're having to um, demonstrate that they are likely to be achieving good grades um, at the A-levels. We are specific about a couple of them. It's chemistry and biology for us. Uh, and again, we heard uh, from Tim, you know, 15% of students are now getting three A's. So on its own, we are finding it, we would have found it very difficult to select on that, on that basis alone. Obviously, there are other qualifications that we accept. Uh, the International Baccalaureate is probably the other main one that we consider. Um, we ask for 38 points. Again, there are specifics uh, at higher or uh, standard level. Whoops. Uh, well, I think that's not slide. I think the previous one was simply to say, yes, about BMAT. The purpose of BMAT, I won't go into in any great detail, but you'll appreciate that what it's really for, as far as we're concerned, is... Um, looking at the way uh, students can utilise the knowledge that they have in uh, a way that is going to be beneficial in terms of their future careers. So 
intellectual skills, a certain level of knowledge which we, can, which we think is tested by BMAT in a different way from simply getting a particular grade at GCSE. It is actually at a relatively um, low level in terms of uh, where they are in their careers, so there should be no real problem for um, school children at that stage. And basically, we would like to think that uh, it would increase the chance of um, accessibility for everyone having the chance of doing well or not in BMAT, depending on, irrelevant of where they're coming from. Uh, the universities that use BMAT, uh, you will almost certainly know, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, University College and ourselves for medicine, but you will appreciate that uh, Oxford and indeed Imperial uh, use um, BMAP now for um, our biomedical sciences, BSEs. You will also appreciate that it is used for veterinary medicine by Cambridge and, of course, by the Royal Veterinary College. But it's a small and select group. And, of course, uh, what is interesting is that it's, the chances are that the pool of students uh, who will be applying to these colleges may well overlap to some extent in terms of indi individual institutions and we know that um, that is indeed the case uh, not surprisingly for us you will appreciate that we had to um, somehow have a way of um, discriminating above and beyond the entry qualifications that they were offering us um, so we wanted an objective test which would allow us to discriminate between these highly qualified candidates. And from Imperial's point of view, we were getting overwhelmed by uh, the numbers of letters and complaints coming in uh, because, I understand, I mean, it was very difficult for us to be um, able to demonstrate that we were, had been open and transparent up till then. It was based essentially on a subjective uh, system of looking at UCAS forms and making selection on that basis. So again, BMAT was going to provide us with something that was, uh, we felt, reasonably defensible and would certainly uh, reduce the uh, number of uh, complaints that we might receive, and such has been the case. Uh, also, obviously, it was going to be more economic for us, uh, certainly in terms of staff time. And again, we have been going over the last few years through a situation where there has been a lot of paring down and that the main research institutions, like uh, all the ones that uh, are on the list, the drive uh, has been very much uh, research. And therefore, anything to do with teaching and the students has, to some extent, been uh, more sidelined. I think people are beginning to realise that that's not necessarily a good idea. But nevertheless, it was very important for us to be able to run a system, an admission system, uh, using fewer staff and certainly um, staff uh, time. And obviously it meant that we could be more focused in terms of the people that we were calling up for interview. BMAT details, uh, again, we felt were important to appreciate. It was a, a written exam taken on the same day across the whole world, uh, which we felt was um, useful. And as you can see, and as you almost certainly know, it's uh, made up of three sections that we believe are particularly relevant for us. And it's the aptitudes and skills, the scientific knowledge, which a lot of people will say, yes, but that's tested elsewhere. 
Not really. We think that it's the way that people apply that knowledge that has been important in a kind of specific test over a two-hour period, such as is offered by BMAT. So we believe that for our course, uh, BMAT was something very, very useful. And the third section, for medicine, we think is reasonably important, and that's the ability to communicate. Uh, obviously, we get a feel for their verbal communication uh, at interview, but the writing task nevertheless allowed us to see how well they could think uh, an answer through to a specific question, for instance, and indeed uh, see how good their standard of English was, is. And nowadays, um, the writing task, we actually get marks which identify both of those components. Uh, and again, yes, uh, we, well, I'll come back to this, but it's very important to appreciate that there are centres, lots and lots of centres, particularly uh, in the UK, but overseas too. And that's very important to us. Now, when we started, we were very new to the use of a BMAT uh, or to the use of an admissions test. And so what we did is in the first year that we ran BMAT, we did a very simple analysis of how the students had performed compared to the previous cohort who had come in without going through the admissions test. So that's the 2005-06 cohort pre-BMAT versus 2006 and 7. Now, I'm not saying this is a perfect study whatsoever, but it did give us some reassurance. This is just an indication of the uh, percentages of students on the um, left-hand side, and then along the uh, y-axis, these are the essential average uh, mark, uh, marks or as a percentage in uh, the, the end of their year one exams. And I would simply point out the fact that uh, there are reasonable distributions for both years, but uh, of particular interest to us was the fact that a much higher percentage of students in those we'd used BMAT for were actually uh, doing better uh, in their end of year exams. And in fact, this has been uh, in accordance with uh, the results found elsewhere, and we have continued to show it. And uh, I think that was sufficient at the, that stage uh, to allow us to proceed with the use of BMAT, despite uh, a couple of um, worries, uh, one of which, again, uh, Tim mentioned, and I shall just touch upon later. This is... Uh, uh, an analysis, just a, a real summary of analysis done by Cambridge Assessment uh, on the basis of our data for last year's students. And basically, um, I think you can see that there are very good, significant correlations, uh, particularly for sections one and two, which are the knowledge base and the aptitudes and skills um, for our various papers. Interestingly, uh, section 3 doesn't come into this. Now, that is simply, uh, there is a correlation, it's just that it doesn't reach significance, but, of course, that is because they are not really tested in uh, anything to do with writing. The most that they write at that stage is a short answer question where they literally, you know, which might be just a figure and, and a sentence or so. So, obviously, there was nothing really to uh, compare uh, using Section 3. That will nevertheless, we believe, uh, show its real value 
in our fourth year, which is the year that our students actually do their BSc, so they drop out of the medical course for a year and do the BSc, because there they have essays, presentations and the whole lot, and uh, my feeling is that it will correlate quite nicely with the year four results. Right. On the basis of the BMAT, we go down next to the UCAS form. You will be aware of the fact that there are various aspects that we have to focus on. Uh, age is particularly important because our course, uh, and a lot of medical schools now, um, actually it has a clinical component right from the start. And that will mean that uh, students may well be uh, meeting vulnerable patients. Uh, and we very strongly believe that for various reasons, including legal um, the students should be uh, adults. So we are reasonably firm about the age at which uh, they enter our course. And then the CRB declaration uh, is something that is equally important but is problematic for us in some instances. I won't go into it, but it does actually cause us some problems um, when uh, we don't get the results in time, for instance. The personal statement really is what we focus on particularly, because this is where we are going to try and identify whether or not somebody is serious about wanting to do medicine. And it's quite interesting, you'll be amazed at the number of people who, in their application form, will be telling us why they really enjoy engineering, you know, which is great, but it won't help us decide whether or not they're serious about their motivation to medicine, for instance. So there are lots of aspects to the uh, UCAS form which uh, provide us with some useful information uh, the work experience is of particular use, uh, and I'll just come back to that later as well. And then, obviously, uh, we can afford to pick and choose to some extent, so we do look for people who are going to be already demonstrating those characteristics that we would expect uh, from our doctors, i.e. leadership skills, teamwork, because, as you know, medicine is no longer a, an individual pursuit. And then, again, um, we have uh, an interest in the extracurricular activities, and I think there are various reasons why we focus, to some extent, on extracurricular activities. Uh, one of them is the fact that medicine is really stressful as a course and is going to be really stressful as a career. And therefore, we need to be um, convinced, as much as we can, that students have an outside life. They've got a way in which they're going to be able to uh, get rid of some of those stresses, a lot of which are going to be emotional stresses. And, of course, they're going to be together as, a, as a, um, a body for six years. So they do actually develop very tight links uh, within the Faculty of Medicine. And, of course, that is tied in with the large number of clubs and societies that they have. And it's really important, we believe, that the students who are coming in will be able to participate in uh, those various clubs and societies uh, from the stress point of view, but also from the learning point of view. It's amazing how much they will pick up from uh, being with their peers. And again, this is a problem that we face nowadays more and more with respect to accommodation, because a lot of students uh, don't make the most of the fact that we offer them accommodation in the first year in one of our halls of residence, because they can't afford it, for instance, and will be living at home. And they lose out to some extent... Uh, from that, I think, very important uh, dimension. And then the reference, yes. Again, we uh, try to read between the lines, I think I can say uh, there, but it is not always very easy. The interview itself um, for the six-year course is really short. It's uh, 
15 minutes long, but in that time, the panel really has to make a decision. Uh, we try to balance the panels as much as possible, so we'll have academics and uh, GPs and surgeons and uh, you know, doctors from the hospitals. Uh, we try to balance um, you know, male and female ethnicity as much as we can. And we will very often have a member uh, from the lay public who is very often um, a, a sixth form uh, tutor in a school or a head teacher or whatever. Uh, anybody who um, actually we can appreciate has an interest in seeing how um, our process works uh, can come along as um, one of our lay observers. And then uh, something that we've introduced relatively recently, we now always have... Um, uh, one of our senior students on the panel. And we find that they are actually extremely good at uh, identifying who they think uh, will be good students. They will usually be focusing on the extracurricular activities, but in general they uh, tend to agree very much with the rest of the panel. And uh, the, the panel, each individual, uh, deals with each person completely separately and then the results are pooled so that a final decision can be made. And it's quite a structured interview and obviously we will be pursuing the things that I've already mentioned. They're all there on our website there's no secret about the kinds of things that we're going to be asking um, applicants when they come. Coping stratagems I think is quite important and then we do have a question that they won't have had a chance to really prepare for uh, which may be something topical maybe something slightly ethical uh, and we will be using that as a comparator on a given day uh, between candidates. So that essentially is how we work it. And uh, so far, um, we don't really have um, too much of a problem uh, because I think it's so much more transparent than, than our system used to be. I now want to... Um, I'm doing all right. Uh, tell you a little bit about uh, the Graduate Entry Programme and UK CAT. We use essentially the same process, so I'll be able to go a lot faster through this. Uh, obviously, the qualifications that we're going to be looking for will be different, and we use, interestingly, um, the other test, UK CAT, for our graduate uh, entrance. We then have a look at their UCAS forms, and we give them uh, a much more solid interview uh, for reasons that will be, uh, become apparent. And then we make uh, the same offers the entry qualifications are relatively specific for us. They have to have an upper second or greater and, uh, or a PhD. And uh, I think of our 50 students this year doing uh, our course, uh, half a dozen have actually come in with PhDs already. And these are all people who have actually studied at the degree level in something that is relevant to medicine in some way, i.e. some kind of biomedical subject. And uh, I know this differs with other medical schools, but for us, um, we can then focus very much on their scientific background because Imperial rather uh, grandly uh, likes to think that this course is the one that is going to identify those high-flying um, academic clinicians. In fact, most of them will end up as GPs, like every other um, <laughs> way into medicine, I'm sure. But that's why the science background is quite important for us. Um, again, the purpose is similar. We want a fair objective test. 
uh, it has to be defensible, um, transparent and uh, economical, essentially. And for the same reason, it will actually lead us to be able to reduce the number of people that we need to call for interview. And interestingly, this is the one that most medical schools use for their main undergraduate medicine um, procedures. There are a few that don't, obviously the ones that use BMAT. Uh, and it's worth remembering that uh, Oxford and ourselves both use it for our graduate entry programmes. Uh, we certainly have a reason for that. Uh, as far as um, other medical schools, there is still a small number that are not using any admissions tests. I have no idea about whether you know, their numbers have gone up, application numbers or whatever, but certainly there are still three of the medical schools that, to my knowledge, um, don't actually use one. UK CAT is essentially based on various reasoning skills. This is taken from their website. There is nothing uh, new here. And uh, part five, the non-cognitive analysis uh, component, has been put in at least for one year, but um, we, we don't get the results. It's still uh, undergoing supposed trials at the moment. So it's the other four that will provide us with scores. So, uh, why do we want to use UKCAT rather than BMAT? Well, BMAT is looking at science at a much lower level. And therefore, the people who are going to be applying for our graduate entry programme may or may not remember that much about the physics and the chemistry, etc., that you'd expect them to be aware of at the stage that uh, our six-year entrants are coming in at. And, of course, they're doing something at a higher level in a biomedical subject. So we don't feel we need to test for the science as such. On the other hand, there are lots of other advantages for using an admissions test that I've already touched upon. Uh, for instance, the amount of time and uh, effort saved by reducing the overall number of people applying for the particular course. And we believe that looking at uh, individuals' aptitudes at the age of 17, which is when uh, people will be doing UK CAT if they're going to one of the main undergraduate medicine courses, may be a bit young. It doesn't... You know, it may, that may be a problem for us. Whereas for someone who's 21 or older, then we feel that perhaps there is a little bit more um, solid basis for us looking at uh, those various reasoning uh, skills and aptitudes. So that's the, 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 those are the reasons why we use UK CAT for our graduate entry programme. Now, as I said, we only started the graduate programme relatively recently uh, and, in fact, this, in fact, this is our third year, our third year. In the first year, um, we were actually uh, told to get the course started a year earlier than we'd planned, so we didn't advertise it very much, we didn't get a chance to, and we had about 500 people applying for it, which was amazing. Uh, I've given you um, last year's numbers just to make you realise that if you thought that the six-year undergraduate course is competitive, look at this. We had over 950 people applying for our 50 places. So it is really competitive. And these are people with upper seconds or above in specific biomedical subjects. So it's, we're very glad that we're using an admissions test. <laughs> 
Anyway, basically, we use the UK CAT scores in the same way. We look at those who are scoring the best in all the sections, work our way down until we've got enough UCAS forms to look at, and then we look at the UCAS forms and do a, another small triage. It's a much lesser triage at this stage, but basically we uh, end up with something on the order of 120 people we will call up uh, for interview, and for our 50 places we will make something like 70 offers. So it's a very similar um, sequence. The interview itself is longer. Uh, we are now going to be far more focused on their science background uh, so we can ask them specific uh, questions. Uh, we can present them with scientific data, for instance, ask them to interpret. Uh, we can get them to um, work out um, ethical issues that may be related to that particular um, data that's the kind of thing that we do. But otherwise, it's the same kind of thing that we're looking for. How serious are you about doing medicine? And, uh, of course, at this stage, people can be... Uh, there is obviously no age barrier, so not surprisingly, there are um, a fair number of people who are now in their, let's say, 30s, uh, possibly even in their 40s, who are now considering medicine. And we have to be sure that they are um, coming into medicine for the right reasons. Etc. Etc. So the interview is, nevertheless, we feel important. I'm near the end, folks. Very, very quickly, a little bit about um, applicants from overseas. Uh, from the European Union, they are counted as home students. And this is uh, where we are getting increasing numbers of people applying. From everywhere, as far as Spain, Romania, uh, all, all over the place... Uh, coming in, and essentially uh, we uh, consider them in the same way that we consider our home students. So increasing numbers. But the interesting ones are the ones who are applying from further abroad, because these are considered separately. As you will know, the government identifies a specific percentage of our places that we can offer to overseas students. For our six-year course, for instance, that number is 21. So we have officially 21 places on offer uh, to overseas students. And uh, let me tell you that we have four or five hundred people applying for those 21 places at Imperial. So it's incredibly competitive. So large numbers. It's uh, <coughs> certainly for Imperial College, it's expensive. Uh, obviously, there are reasons. Uh, and then, of course, there are lots of specific issues that we have to consider for overseas applicants. For instance, I've given you an example here. In Singapore, the men, only the men, have to go and do national service. And some of them uh, will, you know, you'll have to make sure when they're applying, when they're going to be able to start, etc., etc. So these are issues that uh, we uh, have to deal with with respect to our overseas students. Now, my final slide really is the issues. And one could spend a long time talking about these in the same way that uh, Tim ended up with a similar type of slide. Entry requirements. There are clearly issues to do with what uh, the students are presenting us with in terms of the entry requirements. Are we right in sticking to the minimal GCSEs that we're asking for, for instance? Should we perhaps start pushing them up? Um, we don't actually consider A-stars. We're not interested in A-stars. At the moment, our main reason is the fact that we've got, we've got an admissions test that will uh, tell us um, whether they're the people that we're looking for, who can actually not just know the knowledge but utilise the knowledge that they've got. Um, how good um, are the uh, 
GCSEs and A-levels, etc., at predicting how well they're going to perform, ultimately, as doctors. And there is still relatively little information about all that. Admissions tests. Various uh, interesting questions. Uh, I did touch upon the fact that, as, as Tim did, gender was a real issue for us in the first year that we did it. The background was that in previous years... We always have slightly more um, females than males applying to do medicine. And before we started using uh, BMAT, uh, we had something like between 55 and 60% of our intake being female, the rest being. (laughs) When we used BMAT, the first time we looked at our data, I was certainly really worried because that... um, difference had completely swapped and we were now taking in 60% males, 40% females in that first year. And we had big discussions uh, with uh, Cambridge Assessment who, bless them, looked at it all for us and said, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with the test. And I'm pleased to say that over the last four years, the numbers which started like that have come completely back down again. And I think one of the reasons might well be the fact that um, it's a timed exam uh, some woman told me, of course, that uh, women uh, aren't going to rush into making decisions, so in a timed exam they may well do worse. Well, if that's the case, they've certainly got their act together because they're doing just as well now. <laughs> so uh, we're nearly back to where we started. But, but that's quite an interesting one. And there are other p- potential concerns that one might have um, with an admissions test. Again, Tim uh, touched upon them, like uh, how fair is it to use the same Um, part of the curve for people who are actually studying abroad, say like in Singapore? Should we expect them to be able to do a test that is really designed for UK students on the basis of GCSEs etc to do as well? In fact I don't think it is a major problem Uh, certainly the people from Singapore as an example are usually, um, certainly the ones we take are pretty good so again we don't think it's it's a real issue The UCAS form, very quickly, let me touch upon one item, and that's to do with the work experience. Um, We now know, and it's very clear, that there are some candidates who will, um, let me put it politely, um, be inaccurate in what they tell us about what they've done, for instance, in work experience. Uh, To put it another way, we know we actually have lots of examples Uh, not us as Imperial necessarily, but but across the medical schools, that there are uh, blatant untruths. So we now are having to enter a system where we get them to provide us information about where they did their work experience so that we can contact uh, a certain percentage to verify whether or not this is true. It's a shame, but probity, I've just got that up there because it has become an issue. Uh, interviews, again, there are going to be people who think that interviews are very subjective. We do our best in getting a balanced panel, and it's a joint panel decision. Uh, but I accept that, uh, obviously, there are going to be issues associated with it. And uh, widening participation. What a shame. I've just run out of time, really. <laughs> because uh, this really is a big issue. And uh, let me just... We are desperate to increase the numbers of people who get to us from comprehensives. I make no bones about it. At the moment at Imperial, uh, I can tell you, but 40% approximately of our intake 
comes from independent schools, which is, when you consider the numbers of people studying at independent schools, absolutely out of proportion. And of the 60% that are left, roughly half are coming from selective grammar schools. So it's those others that we're really trying to reach out to, and we have a whole lot of things now developing already in place that we're using in order to try to uh, increase uh, the numbers, the proportion coming from the comprehensives, who, as, again, I think, Tim, you mentioned, there is evidence to suggest may well end up doing better in the end than people who've been, you know, crammed at that earlier stage, trained... Uh, as much as uh, some schools will do in order to get them in. So I think on that note, I shall uh, uh, very quickly give you my summary. It was the background. I talked to you a little bit about our six-year and four-year courses, and there are clear uh, comparisons in the way that we deal with it. I touched upon applicants from abroad, and I just opened the can of issues for you. (laughs) Thanks very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.